we read scripture from John chapter 19. The gospel according to John 19. We read the first 30 verses of the chapter and we take as our text that 30th verse. We hear the inspired word of God. Then Pilate, therefore, took Jesus and scourged him. And the soldiers platted a crown of thorns and put it on his head. And they put on him a purple robe and said, Hail, King of the Jews. And they smote him with their hands. Pilate, therefore, went forth again and saith unto them, Behold, I bring him forth to you that ye may know that I find no fault in him. Then came Jesus forth, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate saith unto them, Behold the man! When the chief priests, therefore, and officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate saith unto them, Take ye him and crucify him. For I find no fault in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and by our law he ought to die, because he made himself the Son of God. When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he was the more afraid, and went again into the judgment hall, and saith unto Jesus, Whence art thou? But Jesus gave him no answer. Then saith Pilate unto him, Speaketh thou not unto me? Knowest thou not that I have power to crucify thee, and have power to release thee? Jesus answered, Thou couldst have no power at all against me, except it were given thee from above. Therefore he that delivered me unto thee hath the greater sin. And from henceforth Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, saying, If thou let this man go, thou art not Caesar's friend. Whosoever maketh himself a king speaketh against Caesar. When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he brought Jesus forth and sat down in the judgment seat in a place that is called the pavement, but in the Hebrew, Gabbatha. And it was the preparation of the Passover and about the sixth hour. And he saith unto the Jews, Behold your king. And they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate saith unto them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. Then delivered he him, therefore, unto them to be crucified. And they took Jesus and led him away. And he, bearing his cross, went forth into a place called the place of a skull which is called in the Hebrew Golgotha, where they crucified him and two other with him on either side one and Jesus in the midst. And Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross and the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. This title then read many of the Jews, for the place where Jesus was crucified was nigh to the city. And it was written in Hebrew and Greek and Latin. Then said the chief priests of the Jews to Pilate, Write not the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, 
I have written. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts to every soldier apart, and also his coat. Now the coat was without seam, woven from the top throughout. They said, therefore, among themselves, Let us not rend it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be, that the scripture might be fulfilled, which saith, They parted my raiment among them, and for my vesture they did cast lots. These things, therefore, the soldiers did. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Cleopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple standing by whom he loved, he saith unto his mother, Woman, behold thy son. Then saith he to the disciple, Behold thy mother. And from that hour the disciple took her unto his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, saith, I thirst. Now there was set a vessel full of vinegar, and they filled a sponge with vinegar and put it upon hyssop and put it to his mouth. When Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. We read that far. May God bless his word to our hearts. We take as our text verse 30. When Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, all the wicked forces of darkness rose up in opposition against Jesus, the Messiah. The devil was set on destroying the people of God. And you children know his intent from the very beginning. The devil had his eye on Abel. Saw to it that Abel was killed by Cain. But then God raised up another seed. The devil, through the ages, sought to destroy the people of God. He set his eye on Enoch, but then God translated him. He tried to destroy many, many, but Jehovah God was faithful. And as he directed his wrath toward the saints and toward the prophets, God preserved to himself his people and his church. When the Son of God came into this world... The devil directed his wrath all the more pointedly toward Jesus of Nazareth. The full wrath of the wicked world was directed toward the Messiah. And the devil knew that if he could bring down the Messiah, then he would accomplish that great victory which he longed and desired. The fury of wrath intensified throughout the life of Jesus until finally they crucified him. Now the devil stands gleeful before the cross, thrilled that finally, finally his great enemy has been conquered. And then Jesus cries this cry, it is finished. The cry that meant that the heel into which the devil had sank his fangs had now come down on the head of the devil. The devil was crushed. He's defeated. The cross is the death of death. And death as the curse of God upon sin is now destroyed. 
The great news of the gospel, the wonder of salvation, echoes from the cross throughout all ages in that glorious word, it is finished. This is one word in the original Greek. And what a word. This is the word that Jesus spoke just after he said, I thirst. Now we know that it's not the last word that Jesus spoke. Even though in John here, immediately after this, we have, he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. We know there was one more word. Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. But this word, this word is a word of victory. It's a word that speaks of life. It's a word that assures of comfort. It's a word that speaks of blessed hope. It's a word that is victorious. And we look at this word this evening on Good Friday. It is finished. Noting, first of all, the accomplished fact. What was finished? Secondly, the terrible judgment. By this, effectively, Jesus had crushed the head of the devil. And then finally, the perfect blessedness. Jesus finished the work that he came to do. Now note, Jesus says, it is finished. Jesus does not put the emphasis on himself. He doesn't say, I have finished. The focus remains on the work that he came to perform. It, that is, the work, is a finished. Now, from the beginning of his ministry, Jesus had that work in mind that he had to accomplish. And so evident that was that already when he was 12 years old, you remember the burden that he had for that work. When his mother chastised him because he got lost, what was his response? Wished ye not that I must be about my father's business? He was conscious of the father's work that he had been created and formed and set out to accomplish. Later on, Jesus said in John 4, verse 34, My meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. And so all his life long, Jesus had that work in view, that work that was necessary for him to accomplish in order to fulfill the word that had been spoken. And it had to be done perfectly. Now, the word finished comes from a word that has to do with end or goal. So that the work that Jesus came to do was a work that would be perfected, a work that would be accomplished. It had to reach the goal of being approved by Jehovah God, the Father. And Jesus now testifies that he had reached that goal. He reached that finish line. He would now receive the reward that God had determined would be his for accomplishing that goal that he had. Now that word, it is finished, cannot refer to all the work that Jesus had to accomplish. Because Jesus still had a lot of work that he had to do. He still is going to be raised from the dead. He's still going to send up into heaven. He's still going to pour out his spirit. Jesus is going to rule all the nations. He still has to gather his whole church out of all the nations of the world. That's a work that's continuing now. As his word and his spirit goes forth, in all of their power in order to accomplish that wonder. Jesus is yet going to be preparing the new heaven and the new earth. He has to yet come back again in judgment so that there's much yet that Jesus has to do so that we have to narrow down what is the meaning here. It is finished. 
Nor can we say that it's referring to Jesus' suffering, that now his suffering is finished. Strikingly, even the Bible doesn't allow that in this sense, that it speaks of the fact that the Apostle Paul and us as Christians continue yet to a degree to fulfill the sufferings of Jesus Christ. Now we know that it's no suffering that would be necessary for reconciliation, no suffering that was necessary for atonement, but there's a sense even in which the suffering of Jesus is not yet completed because that suffering continues yet in his body. Colossians 1 verse 24 speaks of Paul fulfilling the afflictions of Christ in his flesh. So what is the work that's being spoken? The work here is the work specifically of reconciling God with his people. The work of reconciliation is that work that had to be accomplished. God's people had alienated themselves from God. And the result was that the great burden for which Jesus came was now to bring reconciliation between Jehovah God and his people. And Christ came as the mediator to accomplish that reconciliation. Reconciliation is the change of legal relationship between two parties. And that's what had to happen here. God was holy and righteous, whereas man, sinful, the object of God's wrath and anger, change had to take place here in terms of the offending party being reconciled to Jehovah God. And what was that offense? Guilt and shame was upon the people of God. That guilt had to be removed and it had to be replaced instead with the perfect righteousness and innocence that would be only in Jesus Christ. That which interfered with the relationship between God and his people, sin, and the consequences of sin, and the guilt and shame of sin, had to be removed. And so all his life long, Jesus was obeying his Father perfectly in order that he might accomplish that goal of earning perfect righteousness for his people, bearing the burden of their guilt and wrath, and covering them with his own righteousness and life. That work of reconciliation was the work of reconciling then his people to God. Fellowship and communion with God reconciled. Now God didn't need to be reconciled. The world needed to be reconciled to God. God's people needed to be reconciled to Jehovah God. And Jesus accomplished this work of reconciliation as the head of the covenant. The covenant had been established in the way of sin and grace. Man forsook God's commands. Man ate of the forbidden fruit. And as a result, could have no more fellowship with God. That covenant had been broken by man. But God in his faithfulness would maintain covenant. And he would preserve covenant. And he would do so through Jesus Christ as the head of that covenant. God promised, I will be your God. You will be my people. And he promised that he would preserve and keep to himself a people to the very end. And that Jesus then would be the one who as head of the covenant would accomplish that wonder. And so God ordained that from the beginning of time, a Savior 
would be sent. Jesus would accomplish that wonder. The task was laid on Jesus to accomplish this reconciliation between God and his people in order to restore covenant communion and covenant friendship. The whole life then of Jesus was consumed with that one goal and that one purpose, to reconcile all things that the Father had given him to the Father. And God gave him all of his elect that none of them would be lost, but that all of them would be brought into that fellowship. And so Jesus had to walk the way of perfect obedience his whole life long in order to accomplish that wonder. This perfect obedience then was attributed to all those whom he represented. All those whom he reconciled were declared holy and righteous in him. Now that reconciliation could only take place in the way of payment, atonement. Payment had to be made for sin. And that payment would be accomplished only in the way of suffering, agony, sorrow. All his life long he had to suffer. Psalm 88 verse 15, I am afflicted and ready to die from my youth up. Now we can't even begin to fathom what's all comprehended in those words. From his youth up, and already at the age of 12, having that burden upon him that he knew he had to do his father's business and what that father's business entailed. Reconciling a people to God by making perfect payment for their sins. Especially at the end of his life, the weight of that became heavy. And he endured great sorrow, great pain as a result. And then finally the cross, nailed to the cross, the vulgar mob about the cross, of whom it is said, none took pity, none spoke a word of comfort. Psalm 69, verse 20. An awful cloud descended so that God put the world in darkness, a darkness that hid him, not only from the people that were present at the cross, but a darkness that hid him even more seriously from the face of his Father. The dry, thirsty lips, the parched reality that we noted Sunday, the fearful conflict with the powers of darkness when the servant of darkness bruised his heel. Is it nothing to you, all ye that pass by? Behold and see if there be any sorrow like unto my sorrow, which is done unto me, wherewith the Lord hath afflicted me in the day of his fierce anger. Lamentations 1 verse 12. What a sorrow, what an agony he endured during that three-hour period of darkness. And now, it's finished. And that's the victorious declaration. That work of reconciling his people to his heavenly Father is accomplished. And never again will the face of God be hidden from those whom he represented. The goal of the incarnation is reached and accomplished. He has saved his people from their sins. It is finished. I have accomplished, Jesus says, everything that Jehovah God commanded me to do in order to attain that reconciliation. 
one word in the original language, one word describing the fullness of redemption, of atonement, of reconciliation, one word that reflects the wonder of the fullness of God's covenant faithfulness toward his people. And it's accomplished. This is a word that's full of meaning, a word that's full of significance. And it was a word that gave honor and glory to Jehovah God. Christ perfectly glorified God through his work. That was his goal through the whole of his life. And centrally, that was his desire, that God be honored and God be glorified in everything that he took up. That was the testimony at his birth of the angels and the shepherds. Glory to God in the highest. That is, God must receive all glory and all praise through the birth of this babe. This was Jesus' repeated testimony throughout his ministry. Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy Son, that thy Son also may glorify thee. John 17, verse 1. Jesus' burden was to do the will of his Father in order that in that way God be glorified and God be praised. John 17, verse 4, I have glorified thee on earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. All the miracles, all the preaching, all the teaching, all the suffering was all directed to the glory of God. John 6, 38, For I came down from heaven, not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. John 6, verse 38, In John 12, verse 49, For I have not spoken of myself, but the Father which sent me. He gave me a commandment, what I should say and what I should speak. And then John 14, 31, But that the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father gave me commandment, even so I do. Arise, let us go hence. Jesus' mission was to glorify his Father. And in his suffering on the cross, the name of Jehovah God was glorified. All that the Father gave him was reconciled to the Father. It was finished as the suffering servant accomplished in perfect obedience that which was required. And the result now is that God receives all the glory of salvation. And those saints who are reconciled to Jehovah God have as their desire to magnify and to exalt God to all eternity. What a comforting, victorious word, beloved, for us. It is finished. This is the word of our justification. We speak of the people of God being justified in our experience and in our consciousness through faith alone. There's also an objective justification that took place at the cross when Jesus spoke this word. Jesus declared his own elect righteous. He didn't just declare himself righteous, his own people, his elect, righteous in him. And all those found in him receive that blessedness. The work of reconciliation is finished. All the other work that Jesus still had to do was made sure by this finished work. The devil would be destroyed, the new heaven and the new earth would be established, The church would be gathered. Every last child of God would be saved. All of that would be sure because 
the work of reconciliation was finished. Beloved, this truth means very practically that nothing more is necessary to add to the wonder of the cross. And this word then condemns the Roman Catholic theory of the Mass, teaching that it's necessary that Jesus be repeatedly offered up. Jesus said, it is finished. There's no more need for repeated offerings. What was necessary has been accomplished. And therefore, there is no need for any theory of Rome that speaks to the necessity of continued sacrifice. This notion condemns every idea of purgatory. There is no more suffering that's needed to satisfy God. Purgatory says there's still more suffering that God requires. Jesus says it is finished. The work of reconciliation has been accomplished. Even more than that, this word means that every last one for whom Jesus died is saved. The word demands what we call limited atonement. That is the atonement atones for sin and because the atonement is satisfaction for sin of necessity it's limited to those who are the elect those for whom Jesus died the power of the atonement is that every single one for whom he died is saved and the scripture echoes this throughout just to mention a few Galatians 3.13 Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law being made a curse for us. It's an accomplished fact. He redeemed us because he made himself a curse in our place. Romans 5.10, For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. While we were enemies, Jesus reconciled us. He accomplished the wonder. And the result then being that we are saved. There is no possibility of falling away for God's elect. Hebrews 10 verse 14, For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. The theory then of a universal atonement is a denial of this word of the cross. A universal atonement says that Jesus died for all men. Now the problem with that is that They would also add then, but it's obvious all men aren't saved. So then there becomes a question. The fault is either that of the atonement or something else. Now they try to make it a fault of men, but the point is, and the failure of universal atonement, is that the atonement then failed. If Jesus died for all men and not all are saved, then Jesus' death was a failure. And Jesus' death is dependent then only upon men for its accomplishment. The basis of salvation then becomes man's free will and man's endurance and the fact that the sinner perseveres in order to accomplish salvation. If that's the case, is it finished or not? It's not finished. Jesus insists it's finished. The theory of universal atonement then teaches the lie that salvation is not due to the power of the cross. It's not dependent alone on Jesus suffering and dying, but it's dependent on the will of man. That 
destroys the cross. Jesus died for his elect. And upon his death, every single one of his people are justified objectively. And in time, every last one of them will be brought to a conscious knowledge of the wonder of that salvation. The debt has been paid. Not one is lost. God's justice demanded that for every sin that was committed, payment had to be made. And Jesus now says, it is finished. Reconciliation is accomplished between Jehovah God and every last one of his elect. Now then is the judgment of this world. This is a word of judgment. John 12, verse 31 says, Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. This word of comfort for God's people is a word of terror for the wicked. And we need to look at that for a few moments. All is finished, not only regarding our being reconciled to God, but also then the condemnation of the wicked. They might imagine that the opposite was true that they had sealed the final destruction of their enemy. Blindly, they had cooperated in the plan of God, and in it, they sealed their own doom. God's judgment becomes now a stark reality. The blood of him whom they killed will soon reveal itself in the destruction of Jerusalem, the death of many who are present, and their entrance into unquenchable fire, God is not mocked by the rebellion. God is not mocked by the wicked. They sinned willfully and they are left without an excuse for their sin. So that the promise from the dawn of history of Genesis 3 verse 15 is now realized. The head of the serpent is fatally crushed. Whereas the heel of the seed of the woman of Christ is but bruised. The hope in which godly women brought forth seed through the Old Testament is now realized. And the church is able to rejoice in the final destruction of the foe who challenged her continually. All through the Old Testament, the devil sought to bring about the destruction of God's people and the destruction of God's perfect plan of reconciliation. And now Jesus says, it is finished. The devil can't destroy it. There is no possibility of the devil undermining that glorious work. The final victory over the devil has been accomplished. Even though the full evidence of that triumph is yet going to wait for a time. Hebrews 2.14, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil. This word, beloved, is the word of answer to the rage of men and the enmity of the devil. All was completely just and all was perfect. Just as all had been prophesied had attained its goal, God had also accomplished the destruction of his enemies. And God had demonstrated here his judgment on the wicked. This judgment continues through all ages. Christ, through his spirit, announces his triumph over his enemies that ever faced the church. Already in the Old Testament, the point is made that Israel, Zion, is saved 
through judgment. The only possibility of the salvation of the church is the judgment of the wicked and the judgment of the world. And that judgment continues. The repeated declaration of the wicked that they are overcoming the seed of the woman, that they will have the victory, is shown incorrect. Jehovah's on the throne, and Jehovah sits on the throne, and he judges righteously. None can imagine that they can continue in sin without consequence. That's the way of the wicked. We can continue to sin. We're not going to experience any consequences. Noah warned them in the Old Testament. They kept on partying until the flood came and destroyed them all. Now, Jesus calls us to warn and to speak that testimony. He's coming again. He's coming as judge, and he will bring about the final end of all those who walk in sin unrepentantly. The devil tempts us. The devil causes us to think, no, you don't have to worry about judgment. You can continue to walk in sin. You don't have to worry about consequences. And we fall tragically for that temptation for a time, just like David did and others. God, the searcher of hearts, will expose our sin of murder, our sin of adultery, our sin of lies, of greed, of lust, our sin of slander. God will expose such. And if we don't repent, we will perish. The wicked stand judged. And the enemies of Christ are forever destroyed, both in the past as well as the future. The foes of the future cannot escape the condemnation of the cross. And their judgment is going to be identical with that of their champion. The devil will be cast into that bottomless pit along with all of the wicked who continue unrepentantly. And when that judgment occurs and the one here who was rejected, who was killed, emerges, he emerges as the living one, as the one who is all-powerful, the one who is victorious, who judges now all men and women at that final judgment. And he punishes with everlasting death. The suffering servant, the righteous judge. And the foes of Christ, the foes of his kingdom, will be utterly destroyed. It is finished. The church is redeemed through judgment. And as we live in these last days, and as the wicked rail, and as the devil seeks to have an upper hand, and at times we would despair as we see his power, we see his influence, this word of the cross echoes in our minds. It is finished. He will not have the upper hand. Jehovah rules, and the devil and all of his influence will be destroyed. There's perfect blessedness for the people of God. Now, first of all, for Jesus, for Jesus, this victory meant unparalleled bliss. Gone forever was the suffering, the sorrow, the grief that he bore for the sake of his people. Never again would our Savior suffer. His weakened earthly body was sown in corruption, weakness, and dishonor and now brought into the grave and would be raised in power. It would be raised in strength. It would be raised in honor. Forever removed the guilt and the 
shame of sin that he bore on our behalf. The full goal of his incarnation and reconciliation accomplished. He now looks forward to heavenly glory. It is finished. And then, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. Convey words of victory and words of joy. His now is the glorified, resurrected Lord who is exalted above all things. And God does at least four things in order to demonstrate this victory for Jesus. The rending of the veil in the temple, the raising of Jesus Christ from the dead, the exaltation of Jesus to God's right hand, and then finally the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. All of these testifying of this wonder and this blessedness that would be his. But because it applies to Jesus as the head, it also applies to us as members of his body. It is finished depicts our justification and our salvation. Now, in a physical way, there are times when it seems as though there's no victory for us. All we see, again, are the triumphs of the foe. We look at our lives and we see how often we fall into sin. We see the battles of sin. And we see the struggles and the suffering of this life. And sometimes we cry out. We see the struggles our loved ones have to endure, the pain, the suffering sometimes. And we say, Lord, how long? How long? Why do you tarry? Come quickly. We need to hear, beloved, the echo of this word through the ages. It is finished. Jesus stood in your place. Jesus took upon himself the atonement for sin. This is the message that we need to hear over against the horror of sin, the burden of guilt. This is the blessed gospel. It is finished. And again and again, God's people need to hear that marvelous and blessed assurance. This is a word of comfort for the living as well as for the dying. In our living, we need to hear this word of pardon. We need to have the assurance that I am righteous before God. I need to know that I have peace with God. I need to know that for me, my life has significance and meaning and purpose. There are times we're flailing around. We can't see the purpose. We can't understand meaning in our lives. And this is the testimony of Jehovah God to you and to me. The work is finished. You don't have to do anything to attain righteousness with Jesus. There's nothing that needs to be added. There's nothing you can add. Your guilt is removed. Your fear and shame is gone. Your life has purpose. And the purpose of that life is as it was for Jesus, to glorify God. That's the purpose of your living. Direct your life to God. Direct it to thanksgiving to Him, to giving Him all praise, all glory. Turn away from your selfishness. Reject the pursuit of sin. Look to Jesus Christ alone and live unto him. God gives us to know that joy and that blessedness that is ours in the cross. And he gives us to know that joy, that thankful praise, that desire to be busy in the work that is set before us with thankfulness and with gratitude. But beloved, we also need to hear this word in our dying Soon the dark shadows begin to fall. And our last days will be here. 
And as the coldness of death descends upon us, and as the horror of the reality of that death comes upon us, thoughts will go through our minds. The dying one is struck with the imperfection of his work on earth. The dying one is struck with the fact that I did not do what I ought to have done. And too often I did what I ought not have done. The dying one is struck with the fact that I was a failure as a husband. I was a failure as a wife. I did not raise my children as I ought. And now looking back with shame, I see all my works as but soiled rags, worthless in the sight of God. As I've spoken through the years at nursing homes, again and again, I've had elderly people approach me and say, Pastor, can you talk to us about grace? They want to hear about grace. They know their sin. They know the horror of it. And they know their failures. And beloved, that's the message that we need to hear. It is finished. That's the message of grace. That's the message of deliverance. As you face death, this is the one word that echoes in your mind. It is finished. Jesus did it. He accomplished it. There's nothing that I needed to do. There was nothing that was dependent on me. There's nothing that can rob me of that peace and that righteousness that is mine in him. So that, beloved, in the hour of the darkness of death, we don't rest on our own works. None of our works can stand before the righteousness of God. But this we have, the righteousness that is in Jesus Christ. And that's mine. And I lay hold on it by faith. And I believe I am reconciled to the living God. And that work of reconciliation is finished. There's nothing lacking with regard to it. For me, there is everlasting bliss in the arms of Jesus because it is finished. There's one way, beloved, that we enjoy this, and that's by faith. God works faith as a gift in the hearts of his elect so that his children lay hold on this comforting word. For you... The way of being right with God has been accomplished. His cry of victory is your cry of victory. By his stripes, you are healed. And through him, there is a treasure of gifts. Gifts beyond our imagination. All the blessings of heavenly life poured out upon us freely and bountifully by our heavenly Father. It is finished, depicts the wonderful joy. I will not die, but I will live forever. God will not demand two payments for sin. One payment is required, and that payment was made. And nothing more is required in order to be reconciled with a living God. Now, beloved, we long to hear that final it is finished. Enter into the fullness of eternal rest. And God will give that reward of life, that reward of grace, not because of anything of us, but all because of what our Savior accomplished for us. Beloved, do you believe this? Are we trying to add something to our sacrifice? 
Do we fear the power of the devil and his influence? There's only one place to turn, beloved. We repent and we cling to Christ. And by faith, we believe it is finished. And by this power, then, we live unto the glory and honor of God. All the wealth, all the fame, all the honor, all the entertainment of this world, it's fleeting. There's no comfort, no victory to be found in it. Vanity of vanities, said Solomon the preacher. Our eternal song has this theme now and to all eternity. All glory to God in the highest. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, strengthen us that we might show forth thy praise in all we do, in all we say, in our conduct, in our actions, that thy name might be exalted and magnified in and through us, in order that our lives might abound to the praise and the honor of our great and glorious God who has accomplished the wonder of salvation for us. And we thank thee for the gift of faith by which we confess, my Lord, and my Savior. Amen.